Welcome to EW's Best of Shows, Entertainment Weekly's weekly look at the best of television and the rest of television. This week, I think more so the best, uh, or at least the bad best. I'm Darren Franich, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, joined as always by my brilliant colleague, Kristen Baldwin. Kristen, how are we doing this week? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little jet lagged, but uh, generally good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. You're jet lagged and I have no excuse. Uh, Kristen, <laughs> uh, we're talking about some good stuff today later on in the show. Uh, I will be joined by Timothy Simons of the late great Veep to oh, discuss so his good. role as Jonah Ryan, uh, which turned out to be quite central to the future of our nation, it, uh, it, it turned out. Uh, we'll also be talking a little bit about the season finale of HBO's Barry and the new show coming to Netflix, What If. First up, Kristen, I want to talk a little bit about the return of a show that I really enjoyed last year. Uh, Vita is the prodigal daughter story of two women who return to their East Los Angeles home initially to bury their mother. Uh, it emerges that a lot, of, a lot of deep feelings going on in this family. The two sisters, played by Melissa Barrera and Michelle Prada, are about as different as two late 20-something, early 30-something people can be. Uh, Michelle Prada plays Emma, who is very much the sort of modern-day corporate citizen, uh, very sort of closed off from the culture and the neighborhood that she came from uh, and in a similar way but also totally different so is her sister Lynn played by Michelle Barrera who's kind of just like the Instagram person and I, I think it's a credit to Barrera's performance that Lynn is not one of the most annoying people on television mm -hmm. um, season one was largely about them uh, kind of very gradually coming around to the idea of staying in the building that their mother used to own with uh, Eddie, who it turned out was actually their mother's wife, uh, that uh, that character played by Sir Enzo Ategui. I hope I pronounced that even close to being correct because she's a wonderful performer. Uh, season two, Kristen, which debuts on Stars on May 23rd, is kind of the beginning of the show proper. Mm -hmm. um, all of the characters are now kind of unified in a common purpose. They are trying to hold on to their mother's building. Uh, that building happens to come with a local tavern, which just feels kind of ready-made for a classical TV show setup. You have all these people who are kind of at odds, literally trying to keep a bar going. And I, I'm not sure what could be more of a like, you know, high platonic sitcom setup that a bunch of people who don't necessarily like each other have to run a bar together. Kristen Vita has a lot going for it. I, I think it really captures its setting in a really evocative way. I, th I think the characters are all really exciting, especially when the main characters are all together. I do always feel some amount of hesitation about the show, even in its new season because it seems to have a difficult time juggling some of its different instincts between mm -hmm. the sort of drama of, of the characters' lives and the kind of larger drama going on around them in gentrifying East Los Angeles. Uh, Kristen, what did you think of season two of, of, of Vita? You know, I really do admire the show a lot and I think it's uh, all the performers are really good and I generally enjoy it. You know, I liked season one. I didn't get all the way through it, but what I saw, I saw probably the first four or five I enjoyed and it's the kind of show where any I think if I watch it I enjoy it but it's not something where I feel compelled to watch and mm -hmm. 
it's too bad because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening. And uh, I always do, like, I love the relationship between the sisters. There is a lot of, uh, and this is, I'm just a total prude, but there is a lot of, uh, a lot of graphic sex on this show. Like season two opens at what may be the most unenthusiastic orgy ever committed to film. Like there's this orgy happening and everyone's really like kind of asleep and like one woman throws up in the middle of it. And it's sort of like, I guess it's supposed to, you know, Lynn decides after participating that like she's going to clean her life up. And I guess that's the purpose of it. But I always feel a little bit like, there's a lot of graphic sex in this show because there can be. Um, yeah. And that never n- that never tends to work out too well, um, for me at least. But generally, I do, I like the fact that it deals with real things, like they're dealing with, you know, caring for an aging parent or yeah. gentrification or dealing with family conflict. Um, but then there are also these touches of magical realism. Um, like th- there was that little girl in the pigtails and the pink dress who was like maybe the ghost of their mother who was hanging around the building. I don't know. But I think that also speaks to what you're saying in that, you know, the show doesn't necessarily always have a handle on what it's trying to do. Yeah. The uh, creator and executive producer is Tanya Siracho. And I just I do just really respect how she is kind of bringing the show in so many different directions. Um, but, yeah, you kind of mentioned I mean, we, we just the, the first few minutes of the new season are <laughs> like, you know, Caligula level graphic sexuality. And the funny thing is you kind of mentioned the one scene, which is, yeah, this sort of dissolute orgy happening somewhere in the Hollywood Hills, I think somewhere kind of fancy. But that is being cross cut with another sex scene with the other sister. And it's interesting because, you know, like stars in general, I, I think, has had a, a pretty interesting last several years. Um, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily the premium cable network that uh, we in the business of talking about television talk about the most, mm-hmm. but it has kind of consistently tried to balance, um, you know, more sort of uh, Friday night style action sexy shows uh, with this stuff that is kind of going in another and more artsier direction. Stars brought us the girlfriend experience and the first season of that is one of my favorite shows. Of, uh, of the decade. Um, Stars, of course, also brought us Outlander, which mm-hmm. as, as a longtime non-viewer, I gather it kind of balances a lot of these different things. It is both oh, yeah. very fun and romantic and has a lot more kind of going on. And yeah, here, here, Kristen, I do wonder sometimes if the balance is totally all the way there between the elements that are, you know, a little more premium cable and, and mm-hmm. a little more even kind of outright melodramatic um, with stuff that does feel super uh, deeply felt and sincere. Um, in general, Kristen, you kind of mentioned that whenever the sisters are together, it, the show really comes to life. And I, I, I would even extend extend that to um, when the four main leads, uh, besides uh, Lynn, Emma, and Eddie, there's also Marisol, who's kind of an activist mm-hmm. played by Chelsea Rendon. Um, whenever they're all together, the show's really good. But the show seems to not ever want them to be all together right and and and, and i know that you know it's doing that because it doesn't want that interaction to feel synthetic and so we're always kind of following them off in their own different subplots but i just think that you know in general a lot of the other characters on the show in in the respective main characters subplot sphere are just less compelling than when the leads are all kind of together because there is just a great central contrast between all of them and between you know how they all feel about their latin heritage and how Right. feel about their neighborhood and I, yeah. I, I just I like it, it juggles that better when they're all together right like did you kind of 
feel that at all? I do agree. I will say that I think this season, just based on the first two episodes I saw, I think they're doing a good job in these first two episodes, setting up some, you know, potentially sort of organizing through lines for the season. Like, you know, Emma has come home now back. She's back in Los Angeles. She's decided to take you know, she's going to run the bar, but they only have six months to turn it around, you know, because she only has enough money for six months. So that gives it a nice, you know, okay, we've got a deadline here. That's good. Structure is good. And then we also have the introduction of this new handyman uh, who uh, is an ex-con and uh, he's, he's coming to help sort of fix up the bar and fix up the building. He's clearly going to be a love interest for Emma. You know, he's he kind of challenges on her superiority. He refers to her as you people. And she's like, I'm a Mexican just like you. What's your deal? But you see that there's an interesting conflict there. I think that uh, the, the idea of there's this mystery about like, was the marriage really legal between Vita and Eddie? And I think that, you know, is going to be something that plays out. So I do hope that there... And there is one other thread with gentrification that may make Emma and uh, Marisol sort of cross paths more often because Emma, you know, they have an opening in their building now because there's a an elderly tenant who passes away and Emma wants to get a higher caliber renter in the apartment. And her sister Lynn is saying like, look, we'd have to have our shit way more together in order to have to attract the higher caliber renter. They're going to want, you know, uh, a building and a and a situation that's much more on top of it than we are. And so there's this uh, sort of conflict because the whole reason Emma's trying to raise money is to keep the developer who's de- gentrifying the the neighborhood across the street from taking over their building. So there are these conflicting and uh, sort of dual purposes happening. So I do think they've set up a lot of good stories. I, I hope that they can kind of stay focused on those stories over the course, because I don't really care about Lynn's ex-boyfriend, Johnny. Like, I don't care. I don't care about him (laughs) and their, you know, their attraction that they just can't seem to, you know, break apart. And I'm not, all those other sort of storylines do, as you said, uh, pale in comparison. So I hope that there's, there's more focus in season two. Yeah. The, just some of the romantic subplots in general, you just feel a little less, uh, exciting really mm-hmm. whereas yeah like when they're kind of talking about you know we need to get new tenants what kind of tenants are we looking for and what does it say about us or even um you know th- th- there's one thread uh, early in the season where lynn is kind of trying to basically reboot the bar and yeah. like, you know what do you do with this bar and you know what kind of clientele are, are, are you trying to get and you know she's kind of trying to both juggle her uh, you know cultural heritage but also try to get in like new people and i just i just think that's a little more when the show really comes to life to yeah. me it feels really special so i'm 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 I, i'm really kind of glad that like it's kind of had this second season because it does it does really feel as if you know just right from the beginning you know last season was a lot of people saying that they were not going to stick around and you just kind of knew you are going to stick around. Right. That's, that's what the show is. <laughs> exactly. Is you sticking around. Is so, you sticking around. Um, so so I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad the show has kind of gotten to the part where it is like, you know, a show now. Exactly. Kind of, There's it, sort it, of a goal. Yeah. Like these yeah. characters have a goal and how do they achieve that goal? And it, it's it sounds I don't know, I don't want to sound patronizing or condescending, but it's also a show that needs to exist in a way, because again, this is a show created by a Latino, starring Latino 
actors and actresses and, you know, about this heritage and about this uh, culture. And that's not something that exists, uh, you know, with any regularity. Thanks, Netflix, by the way, for canceling one day at a time. Um, But so... I want the show to succeed because, you know, you want more of these types of stories. And so I do hope that, and the good news is that on stars, this doesn't seem like a tremendously expensive show to produce. You know, it Mm -hmm. still looks very nice, but it's not, it's not Outlander, you know? (laughs) And so uh, hopefully it's one that they can let uh, develop and grow over multiple seasons. Uh, the new season of Vita uh, debuts in its entirety on the Stars app on May 23rd. Uh, new episodes will also air in two episode chunks starting on the same day. Kristen, uh, should we lighten the mood a little bit here or or, 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 or darken oh the God. mood? I'm not sure which direction we are going in with this next show. <laughs> yes, Darren, our second show of the week is a new anthology thriller from Mike Kelly, who was creator of ABC's long-running primetime soap, Revenge. What If stars Renee Zellweger and Renee Zellweger's wig as Anne Montgomery, a famously ruthless billionaire who decides to fund a floundering genetic startup company run by Lisa, played by Suburgatory's Jane Levy, but there's a catch. Before she'll give Lisa the money for her company, Anne wants to spend one night with Lisa's hunky husband, Sean, played by Blake Jenner. Anne's indecent proposal is motivated by much more than sex, and the series follows Lisa as she attempts to uncover the truth about Anne and what was really behind her night with Sean. So Darren, What If, which premieres on May 24th on Netflix, is not a good show. In fact, it is objectively a terrible show, but I have watched five episodes and I cannot wait to see more. Uh, As he did with Revenge, an often cheesy but compulsively watchable soap opera, Kelly has put together a camp and captivating melodrama that turns its weaknesses into strengths. Everything seems to be winking at the viewer with sort of a knowing look or laugh. Anne Montgomery is supposed to be fantabulously wealthy. She's a gazillionaire. She lives in a high-rise emblazoned with a giant M. But the San Francisco quote-unquote view outside her penthouse window is a cheap-looking painted canvas backdrop that the production does very little to disguise. The majority of the acting is terrible, with apologies to Jane Levy, who is a talented actress given awful material here. But that only serves to highlight Zellweger's gloriously over-the-top performance. She's part Norma Desmond, part Madeline Stowe in Revenge, and She's all a study in the art of subtle scenery chewing. Um, What If isn't a show that jumps the shark, Darren. It's a show that begins with the shark in its rear view mirror and it never looks back. And I don't know. I just, I love it. What's wrong with me? Question mark. Um, nothing, uh, exclamation point, uh, Kristen, <laughs> I, I'd love to kind of just dig into this show a little bit because it's so interesting watching it in 2019. It's interesting watching it in the context of other Netflix shows that we've seen and talked about recently because it's badness feels kind of vintage to me. Yes. Um, it, 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 you know, and that's partially, I think by nature, the fact that it is openly recalling the erotic thrillers of the 19th. 90s. The setup is very much and quite winkingly explicitly taken from Indecent Proposal. Mm -hmm. Um, The San Francisco setting and the florid way that it's used seems to recall Basic Instinct. And there's also also a lot of like security cameras, which I will connect to Sliver because Sliver was also about security cameras. And 
but but even just the nature of the performances, the nature of the setting, which is simultaneously trying so hard to be super topical and Silicon Valley and biochemistry and all of this, it, it all feels like something that Fox would have launched in the Melrose Place era. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or I kept on thinking about a show that I'm sure nobody else remembers from the WB's kind of glory days called Hyperion Bay, yes. which is kind of a like sort of like like early tech industry soap opera yeah it it all kind of it really all kind of captures that feeling and it's interesting because you know there are other netflix dramas that are bad in a very modern way right and that they're just kind of slow they're just slow and there's not enough plot and you know it should have been a movie and the episodes are too long right and this doesn't feel like that um in in both episodes that i've seen so far there's always some kind of gala and always some kind of get together <laughs> um you know you you kind of mentioned um renee zellweger's performance and i, I would even go further to say that like she's been so incredibly miscast here that the casting really works you know, yes you, you, you know um you kind of mentioned uh, I, I think norma desmond is a total touchstone here but it's very much also meant to be that kind of 90s omniscient femme fatale and mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the degree to which she seems to have a, a god's eye perspective on jane levy and blake jenner's characters like by the end of the second episode i was basically like the twist is that she's the devil this is a devil's right, advocate right i'm not sure how else um and it is you know i mean i do think that Jane Levy is giving a legitimately good performance with insane material. She right. she's, she she often seems to be just actively trying to overthink the dialogue into making sense. Right. Um, she is just, she is she is trying so hard. Yeah, yeah. And but, but it's just it's just great because she's she's hitting these incredible serves that nobody else around her is, is hitting back. And it, just, it, it it creates a really distinctive and again like maybe vintage is the wrong word, but like do you know what I mean? How yes. like, this th- this feels like it's aiming and successfully getting at a tone that has kind of been lost a lot. It absolutely does feel TV. quite uh, retro. I mean, even as Revenge did at you know whenever it began, because it was you know the type of sort of campy primetime soap was not something that was and still isn't something that is uh, you know prevalent on TV when Revenge premiered, and certainly not now. There's something about this show where like basically everything is wrong and yet it works. I had to come up with a backstory in my mind in order to make sense of this show. And my backstory was that they just offered her a boatload of money and she was like, fine, I'm going to do three weeks of work. Cause actually once you watch it, you know, she's not, she's in it enough, but you can tell that she did not, you know, there are plenty of other storylines involved that, you know, take up time. So she's not necessarily spending a lot of time on set. And so they must have done that. And then they didn't have any money for anything else. And so <laughs> including her wig, but they just leaned into that. I think they intentionally cast a bunch of actors with the exception of Jane Levy, who again is doing her best, who aren't good. And it doesn't matter because this is supposed to be sort of a, uh, sort of a, a soap opera. And, and that is the style, you know, this sort of blank, uh, emoting like Blake Jenner, who apparently won something called the Glee Project, his style of acting can best be described as blank stare style of acting. Like he he is very handsome, and you know God doesn't give with both hands. And so that is 
But it doesn't matter because his character is, uh, it doesn't matter. He's just supposed to be this guy. He was a former baseball player. He's handsome and theoretically wants to sleep with him. But obviously she has more uh, sinister motives. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. Like he's such a dud. Kristen, he was he was on the Giants. He was on the San Francisco Giants. And this is kind of mentioned casually yes! in the first episode in a way where I sort of thought, like, did I miss that? Because he, he talks about playing baseball. But, you know, when we meet him, he's working as a paramedic, I believe. And there's, yes. there's more. That, but, like, like then there's a, it's a moment in the second episode when he's just kind of looking up his old clips. And apparently he was, like, an <laughs> awful pitcher. But th- this is, this is like, his no, no, origin he was, story. I this think is, he was, like, a good pitcher or a rising pitcher, but then he had some kind of melt down so yeah, like yeah. He, he had he had some kind of meltdown he yeah. had what's called he, he had what's called the yips i had to look this up what is it's, that what is it's, that it's, it's it's kind of a baseball term but just a pitcher who gets like freaked out and like can't can't really throw anymore okay it's, it's what it's it's what happens to me every week before we start the podcast <laughs> but um but but Kristen, like this so so besides that like tragic backstory that's attached to him which everyone brings up all the time all the time like like he also seems to have this deeply violent backstory that we just see in these like and yeah, again, Blake Jenner is not a performer who radiates like a deep amount of aggression or or, or violence right. or anything like that. So yeah, that's that's kind of more what you're talking about. Exactly, like, just, it's like this, kind of hilarious. Perfect blankness. Yeah. He's supposed to be this guy who has this deep simmering rage that has you know sort of rerouted his life in a terrible way, and yet he looks like he's starring in an Abercrombie and Fitch ad. Like he just that's all he can do. He gives and, he serves some face, and it's and, like it's fine. It actually kind think, of works. And I and I think the show is occasionally it on the joke. I, I, I'll i be honest, I can't always tell with Mike Kelly's stuff because like Revenge, when it started, and, and I, I really loved uh, the kind of first half season or so of, of that series, it seemed to be very self-aware and that yes. kind of seemed to... I, I, I was less convinced about that self-awareness as it went along, mm-hmm. but there's a scene in, in the first episode, not a big spoiler, um, where, so they've they've kind of agreed to this quote-unquote indecent proposal and Jane, Le- Jane, <laughs> Jane Levy... Is it, is, is it Levy or Levy? You know what? She's great. It That's the important thing. Okay. Um, um, she, she leaves, and it's just Renee Zellweger and Blake Jenner in a room together, and he just takes off his shirt and says, okay. <laughs> Let's, get, Let's get to this. Let's get to this. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Lisa's parents were killed in a plane crash or something, and she was adopted by her nanny. Like, the backstory is insane. It makes no sense. And then uh, her brother is gay, and he decides he wants to do be more uh, spontaneous, so he and his boyfriend invite a go-go dancer over to have a threesome. Like, And you know that's not going to end well. Like, they're all, there's all this craziness in it. And I do think... You know, what happened with Revenge, you know, a a story like this, these type of high concept primetime soaps burn through stories so quickly. I think it's really smart that Mike Kelly made this an anthology so they can just burn rubber through whatever, 10 or 13 episodes and then start with a new story and pay some celebrity to, you know, be the centerpiece each uh, each season. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know what makes bad TV good bad TV. Uh, It's hard to say, but I think that the fact that this show is clearly quite aware uh, that it is not good and it is sort of leaning into that 
definitely, definitely helps. Yeah. I mean, even just the first scene, the first scene, Kristen, <laughs> when Renee Zellweger just has this incredible, like, um, you know, she's she's all alone in her penthouse. She's like aggressively uh, dictating into her recorder. And she's talking about like fate, I, I think. Like, I, I yes. literally, I'm yes. just so astounded. You know, it's, it's dark and stormy outside. Like, yeah, that's the stuff where um, I, 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 I'm just very glad that like this kind of instinct has not been lost in television. Yes. And then, and, 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 now, Kristen, you watched more than me, and the yes. question that I had was kind of just because um, again, I the first episode for me was a real skyrocket of like cuckoo crazy. Yeah, um, does that kind of continue on through the first five episodes? Like, did you kind of feel like is each episode kind of hitting at least that same kind of kinetic marker, or is there kind of a slowdown that tends to happen with uh, Netflix shows? You know, in episode two and three. And and even to some degree for like you want all you want is Renee Zellweger, but they sort of parcel her out, you know, because they probably enter on set for three weeks. And so they sort of parcel her scenes out, you know, throughout each episode. And you do get these other storylines that at first I was like, Ugh, I'm not interested in this couple. I'm not interested in Lisa's best friend, who uh, Angela, who is pregnant by her, uh, you know, illicit lover and blah, blah, blah. And that said. Each episode has enough crazy that it keeps you involved. Um, and by the way, just like if you watch any daytime soap, and this is a primetime soap or, you know, sort of meant to be, uh, if you watch long enough, you will start getting sucked into these characters if it's done with any degree of uh, of creativity. And so I did start getting sucked into the stupid characters like the gay couple and the Angela with her uh her boyfriend, played by Dave Annabelle, by the way, who is uh, a great, you know, he's a very fun actor, but he's like, definitely, he got the memo that he's not supposed to be using, like, his skills in this. Um, like, he is telegraphing everything. You know that he actually is going to, he's this great guy who actually turns out to be a little scary. And, yes. Yes. And so, but we also need to discuss, we also need to discuss Renee Zellweger's business casual butler foster played by lewis hertham from westworld like he's her butler he's named foster but he's always walking around like kind of in a blazer and a you know a polo shirt and he's offering her like cryptic sort of advice and counsel and she, he's clearly the the only person who really knows what's up with ann montgomery but um he also you know has a little bit more of a conscious conscience than she does, but like, what's that? What's that about? Like, he's he's such a fabulous performer too. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people remember him. He was Dolores's father, right? Heavy quotes because they're all androids. Um, spoiler alert on uh, Westworld. So it's not really a spoiler. Yeah, it's the whole concept of the show. It's the concept of the show. Um, but he was great on that. And I I kind of forgot about this, Kristen. But I guess Lewis Hertham. He was also on Murder She Wrote. Um, <gasps> he was the I, I I'm I'm sort of finding this out live. But he was a he was the young. Sheriff on the Aww. show at some point in its run. Did not know that. Good for him. He's so great. He he also, I think, is the other performer who's really kind of bringing his A-game to this material. Because, yeah. yeah, like... He is just sort of initially like the helper, but it's very clear that there's a lot more going on with him. And yeah, his his incredible attire is quite a sight to behold. <laughs> it's really almost, so weird. There's almost like, I mean, it's just funny because, and again, I, I think this is some element of the 90s erotic thrillers and some element of, 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 of primetime soaps. We're just like, at a certain point, 
everyone seems to have 10 secrets. Yes. Everyone either wants to sleep with or kill or both everyone else in right. the room. Right. And he, he, he really kind of finds that really well, where you're just kind of like, I don't really get what the relationship is. You could honestly tell me that like he's in on it with her, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but so that's, that's the stuff that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the kind of anthology premise of right. it all. I still don't quite get why it's called what slash if. Even the slash kind of feels very 90s it, to me. That it doesn't kinda, make any sense. It, it do- doesn't make any sense. But uh, I think it's because like they have this choice, you know, uh, Lisa and her like hunky husband have this choice. Like, do we take this money and this like indecent proposal? Wait, so, so Kristen, are we meant to understand that each potential season of this, of this anthology is just about like a choice. I think so. And is this where we're at in peak TV, where you can walk into Netflix and say, "Here's an idea for an anthology. <laughs> Characters make a choice. <laughs> Characters make a fateful choice, and then deal with it." Like I guess. And you know what? On the one hand, like Netflix definitely green lights too much and give and gives these shows that should be. You know, we've talked about like Chambers, a show that. That could have been a movie or, uh, you know, they and they have these sort of bloated seasons. But on the other hand, that over green lighting does result in them taking some weird chances like yeah. with this show. And I'm all I'm all in for this. I will say part of the appeal of this show is thinking about like just imagining the thought process that went through Renee Zellweger's mind when she read the script. Like there's one I think it's an episode two where she's. Uh, Anne Montgomery is having a conversation with Lisa, and while she's doing it, Anne is shooting arrows into a wooden statue's butt, and um, it, it just makes me wonder, like, Renee Zellweger at some point read that script and read, like, Anne shoots an arrow into wooden statue's butt and was like, yep, I'm okay with this, and part of the enjoyment of watching is thinking, like, what what happened there? Like, why did she do this? I'm so glad she did. But like, there's just, there's this fascination. And I think that works into the factor of like, and I think the show knows it. The show knows that it's just ridiculous and that everything about it is kind of wrong. And that's part of the appeal. What if debuts on May 24th? Uh, Very excited to hear what people think about that. Kristen, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. Talk about a TV show that has finished its season. Uh, Barry, season two finale aired last night. I'm sure it's the finale that everyone is talking about today uh, on Monday, <laughs> the day after the end of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to talk about it, Kristen, because we've been too. monitoring Barry season two very closely. Um, and uh, the season two finale I found super compelling and also somewhat problematic when I consider what the future of the show is. Um, But just a quick rehash, and again, everyone out there, we are going to be spoiling it in depth. And just so you know, I would hardly recommend Barry Season 2. Season 1 was basically perfect. Season 2, not so much, but a lot of good stuff. So do go and check it out before we start spoiling it right now. Kristen, Massacre! is what happened massacre. in the season two finale. An, an outright massacre. Um, 
lot to kind of dive into over in the showbiz corner of Barry. Um, but I think the top level thing is after a season where Barry was trying very hard not to kill anyone, he wound up killing <laughs> almost everyone. Almost everyone. Um, I, you know, uh, this was an episode that began with one main character pointing a gun at another main character, which felt very high stakes to me. And I think maybe one thing we can talk about is the fact that uh, perhaps those stakes were not quite as high as we thought mm -hmm. but how, how did you feel about this season finale and in general um, we've talked about this a lot where do you now stand on the even idea of having a second season of this show did it wind up kind of justifying itself for you I think it did uh, there it was something that I was anxious about you know we've talked about this but I do think they made there are certainly a few things in the season that didn't quite work, but I think that they were able to further all the stories in ways that were interesting and uh, and really rewarding. Like specifically the Sally story, for one thing. Um, you know, she of course uh, gets an agent and she's uh, she's doing roles and she's playing the wife and she's playing an alien and things like that. And then uh, when she finally in this finale is going to tell her truth. Uh, about her abusive past and and how she stayed with this abusive guy, um, it becomes this uh, you know very intense moment, and all of a sudden, Sally chickens out and she doesn't tell her truth when she performs her scene and she performs it in sort of the revisionist history way that she wants to, where she imagines that she had you know told off her abuser and said you're never going to treat me like that again, and yet everyone loves it. Like she is, all the agents flock around her and they think she's great. They don't want to hear about an abused woman who stays in a bad relationship for years. They want to hear the empowering happily ever after. You know, I said no. I said no and I walked away. They want to hear that story. Meanwhile, Barry uh, also doesn't tell his truth. Um, he's about to. He's like on the edge. He he either has to tell his truth and get uh, Jean Cousineau uh, free, but he doesn't. And he really thinks he he gets to this point where he thinks people can change. And then, as you said, <laughs> you know, it ends with him exploding in the rage that he's been trying to avoid this whole time. I do think that. Um, they dropped sort of the storylines that weren't necessarily working, like uh, Gene's son, you know, that didn't really play out, and that's fine. Um, it ends with a very clear path for season three, but I'm not sure how I feel about that path. The finale began in the kind of big cliffhanger moment from the previous week was Fuchs pointing a gun at the back of Gene's head. Yeah. And, you know, right then, Kristen, what I kind of felt was, you know, I... Not every show needs to kill off its characters, mm -hmm. but if you are a show that is openly putting characters in peril, I kind of think you need to follow through on that to right. some extent. Right. And so, you know, I kind of walked away from episode seven saying, okay, if next week all these characters are still alive, I I'm not so sure this is a show that is following through on its instincts in the same way that in season one, wow, did it follow through on its instincts. Right. I mean, the, the death that ended season one was truly traumatic for being all, you know, even more unexpected. And, you know, the person who died was someone who was like really wonderful. And so, you know, in that sense, sense 
this felt like a bit of a punt to me. Yeah. Like, you know, Barry somehow kills his way through two or three different mobs of enforcers, but doesn't get Fuchs, and Fuchs winds up running off. Right. And, um, you know, Gene, Fuchs has a moment of, am I going to shoot? This is a moment that I cannot stand in television, and TV shows used to do this all the time, and now they do it much less. But someone pointing a gun at another main character and being about to shoot and then kind of frowning and squeezing their eyes and then not shooting. Right. I, I, I just find that to be often not that convincing. I, I did like how the show did really reposition Gene in a lot of ways. Um, you know, obviously, Henry Winkler is so great. And earlier this season, I was kind of worried that Gene was becoming just a somewhat more over-the-top character. Right. And I, I thought that, um, you know, Winkler had so much incredible material to play in this episode, playing True Grief, playing ultimately you know shock um you know the the episode ends with the implication that fuchs has told him that barry killed his girlfriend and what is he going to do with that information um you know i i do like all of that is it weird Kristen, that just spin off something you had mentioned uh for me the best thing about these last few episodes uh was entirely sarah goldberg yeah and sally, and sally. And what was happening with her um we didn't talk about this but in episode seven there was that great kind of poolside Yes. soliloquy which for, for me that was really when even more so than that wonderful episode uh, you know a, f a few weeks ago with all the taekwondo that <laughs> for me was the moment where I really felt like okay like Barry genuinely seems to have something to say about show business yes and e even if the showbiz stuff can be a little over the top and like like you know as much as i love they have a lot of great actors in the ensemble playing the people in the acting class but honestly none of those people really need to stay on the show right as far as i'm concerned but wow um you know i just thought goldberg's performance and you kind of mentioned that chilling success slash failure that ended her her season with sally i just thought that was really astonishing yeah and it's interesting Interesting because we were both a little worried in season two, are they going to be able to, you know, keep the Sally story, you know, relevant? And that that monologue where she's so upset that Barry <laughs> has gotten a feature film audition basically because he was in the right place, which was her uh, the lobby of her agency at the right time and because he's tall. And so he gets this <laughs> he gets this uh, audition and she's so upset about it. And she gives this whole long monologue about how not only, you know, is she worried about doing this one act play about her uh, abusive relationship because, you know, is she supposed to be representing all abused women? But if she doesn't tell her truth, then she's not a real artist. So what is, she, you know, she, there's all this pressure. And then she just goes into this rant about how angry she is and how jealous she is of Barry. And it is this great moment that really does tap into the kind of misery that is the experience of a struggling actor. So I do think that she, you know, she is a character that surprised me this season mm -hmm. for sure and I am interested to see what happens to her now now that she realizes like nobody wants to hear my actual truth and you know if I'm going to succeed in this business I'm going to have to maybe sort of sell out my ideas of what it means to be a real artist and is that yeah. something that she wants to do um, but it does set up this idea of now for Barry you know he's murdered everyone somehow he went through this you know this uh, building filled with mobsters as you point it, pointed out and he murdered everyone but Fuchs got away and 
Now, what are the conflicts we're looking at in season three for him? You know, I guess it's going to be Barry versus Fuchs. And now uh, Gene knows or has been told that Barry killed Janice, his girlfriend. And what's he going to do with that? I'm a little worried that it's going to be kind of predictable in that, like, of course, Gene's not going to believe that's true. You know, of course, Gene's going to go through this whole period of thinking, like, why would this man say this? And, you know, Barry uh, just there's going to be a lot of stalling. You yeah. know, for lack of a better term, I don't know. I'm not sure what what they were thinking with that finale. I mean, I guess you're saying you kind of feel like maybe they should have killed Gene. I hesitate to say show would be better if main character died. Right, right. Um, they have clearly conceived of the show from here, at least as far as what you were talking about. What does it mean for Barry as like... Here are these two father figures, and you know he feels closer to one. He is trying to kill the other, but now the one who he feels closest to knows this thing about him. And again, I just I I, I worry about that as a kind of general plot line for season three. As you mentioned, you know now if we're at this point where the show is just building up to these dark cliffhangers, right. we're a little more aware of the fact that it's going to be that kind of slow buildup. I do think this season was kind of an example of the show, like figuring out a few different things that it is or is not good at. Right. And, you know, um, Bill Hader, he directed uh, two episodes, the, the fifth episode and this episode, which had a lot of like really impressive, um, for lack of a better word, like action set pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alec Berg directed uh, last week's episode, The Audition. That's when you had that incredibly long monologue uh, by Sarah Goldberg as Sally. And so, you know, there's there was so much stuff that was working in this season. I, 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 I do wonder if just on a broader level, the show hasn't quite figured out, you know, how, how are we a serialized show? Well, right. And so, and so that's where the issue comes in, which you're describing, which is, you know, are we now just slowly waiting for Gene to come around? And even, even like, this was a very, you know, uh, early seasons of 24 thing that Fuchs, <laughs> that, that Fuchs told him, like, at one point in the episode, and Gene only really remembered that right at the end of the right. episode. You know, that's did. the stuff that works less well. But you know, Barry has been renewed for a third season, and I'm I'm really happy about that. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm glad that like they have this venue. I I wonder if they'll kind of look at this season and say, okay, you know, the time has come for a more major shift do we even still need him to be in an acting class do we even still need these characters to be linked together in this right. precise way I, I wonder if these are kind of the questions that the co-creators are pondering as they go into season three in part with season one and certainly in season two the question that barry had was you know can people change and just as he's determined in this finale as he says you know he leaves a message for gene with gene's son and he says you know Tell him, you know, tell him I believe people can change. That can happen. And then what does he do? He goes on a rage, you know, rage frenzy killing spree. So I feel like <laughs> we've answered the question, no, Barry, yeah. Barry can't change. So what do we do with that information in season three? And I think it needs to come to its logical conclusion with him either, you know, dying or being thrown in jail. So is yeah. that going, is that where this show is going to go? I don't know. I mean, it's You're hard. Saying- you're saying if they announce tomorrow, uh, season three of Barry will be the end of Barry. That that would be the sort of more optimistic version of, of or at least that would give you the sense that like they are going on a direction with, yes. with him. Yes, yeah. I feel yeah. like, that, you know, we were worried about season two seasons and they managed to get through two seasons and doing, you know, did a 
there's plenty of other shows that in their second season completely fell apart and this one did not. But I do think if they try to go beyond season three, uh, it's going to be diminishing returns. And I hope that having sort of answered that question of the central character, like, no, he's always going to be a killer. And it's not his fault in some degree because he, you know, he has PTSD. He went through horrible experiences in the war. Like he is, you know, somebody who you can have a lot of sympathy for him, but clearly he is a killer. Eventually that has to come to its logical end. 10 seasons of Barry. That's what I want, Kristen. <laughs> 10 seasons of Barry and 20 seasons of Big Little Lies. Keep those stories going. And 100 seasons of What If. Even, yeah. <laughs> Kristen, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, when I come back, I'll be talking to Timothy Simons, who played the great, terrible Jonah Ryan on Veep. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Listeners, getting fit and staying healthy always sounds easier said than done, right? Well, OpenFit is bringing you something new that makes it even easier to never miss a workout session, lose the commute to the gym, and let the workouts come to you. I'm talking about OpenFit, which takes all the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. And I don't know about you, I got a lot of TV to watch, being able to briefly pause for 10 minutes and do a little workout it's already changing my life why try open fit you ask it's got amazing trainers and classes it's super simple you can access it anywhere at any time on your computer your web enabled tv tablet smartphone roku and there's results you can see uh, i have started doing the yoga 52 set got my vinyasa flow on 30 to 45 minutes i'm already feeling better but don't take my word for it Kristen baldwin <laughs> What was your experience like with OpenFit? I got to tell you, I love it because I've always been somebody who doesn't like to go out to the gym. I prefer to work out in my, the privacy and uh, relative safety of my own home. And so I loved the fact that there are all these different workouts and th- you know right away how long they are. 30 minutes I did Hit Where It Counts from the Rough Around the Edges series. And I loved it because, I, you know, first of all, it kicked my butt. I was exhausted afterwards, but all in a good way. And then I still had time to get ready for work and take my son to school and get the train. You know, 30 minutes, you're in, you're out. And when I have more time, I can do the longer ones, but then there are also the 10-minute workouts. So there's there's something for everyone in every sort of lifestyle, and it really just made uh, being healthy a lot easier. Darren, OpenFit has changed the way I work out. And with my code, EWBEST, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Again, use my code EWBEST and start using OpenFit for your journey to a healthier life. Right now, during the OpenFit 30-Day Challenge, listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days. So when you text EWBEST to 
to 3030303030. You will get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information totally free. Just text EWBEST to 303030. Standard message and data rates may apply. Very excited to welcome to the show this week's guest. Timothy Simons played Jonah Ryan on the late, great Veep. Jonah Ryan was a, quote, embittered, vindictive, narcissistic man-child, and that was actually one of the nicer things people ever said about him in the in the sitcom seven-season run. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being with us this week to talk about the finale of Veep. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Um, so I, I want to just dive right in. Jonah, I, I, I've been kind of telling people that in a weird way, his kind of rise to almost power was really one of the central narratives of the show. Um, and by the end of the finale, he had risen almost as far as someone can rise in the government to become uh, the vice president. Uh, at what point were you aware that this was going to be his his final fate, to be to be so close to the Oval Office but not actually get in there? <laughs> yeah, so I knew this was going to be the 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 way that it went when we uh, when we started filming this season, which actually was changed from when we initially started season seven. In that gap when Julie was getting treatment, and the more and more I think that the the Trump White House became a reality, um, a way to like the the end of the show actually changed. So um, and it became this. Um, so that's when I found out about it. And it does, it does kind of, uh, it is kind of funny that the show does begin and end on the uselessness of the vice president's office. <laughs> yeah. It, it's such a fascinating sort of bookend for where the show began. I, I'd love to know um, what was the kind of original plan for Jonah uh, specifically uh, in, in the original kind of incarnation of season seven. You know, I'm trying to remember. I can't, you know, I, I almost don't want to say just in case. I almost think that's a better question for Dave, only because uh -huh. I want him to be able to be the one that makes the decision whether or not that gets out there or not. Uh -huh. um, but I will say it didn't end up this way. Uh-huh. Um, I, 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 one of the things I just loved so much about uh, this final episode was that, you know, it sort of pushed all the characters to the brink, in some cases, of, of sanity. Um, but in some ways, I sort of felt like Jonah got there so much earlier than everyone. This season, right from the beginning, throughout the whole campaign, there was just a sense of someone being totally unbound. And I just, I, I thought that your performance was so wonderful. What was it like? Because this is a character who, you know, when we met him he was at such a different point some of the speeches this season on the campaign trail were just so phenomenally funny and also incredibly dark what was that like kind of playing this side of him just this version of jonah who's just so completely letting it all hang out there in the worst and most hilarious possible way well i mean as far as playing it like it's always fun to think i mean like it is the stuff that he says is terrible um and there is, uh, there is like a, as a performer, like that is a fun thing to play, like to play an unbound person, someone who has no sense of of right or wrong, who <laughs> who will say anything to make themselves feel better, to get attention, positive or negative. There is, uh, you don't have to consider the feelings of the other people in the room or in the world is sort of, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to be able to do. Um, 
but you know, I think for me it was the challenge was trying to find the the lines of thought behind it that would that would ground it in some sort of reality. Like, you know, you can't just be like, oh, he's a dumb guy, so he's going to go say a dumb thing. It, it has to have some sort of internal logic, even if mm-hmm. externally it doesn't make any sense at all. It makes sense to him why he's doing that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just thought that, um, especially in this last episode, seeing him pushed to this extreme of sudden popularity, it was so fascinating. So I, I have a lot of questions about, for me, the big scene um, of the finale was the moment of Jonah getting offered the vice presidency and then initially turning it down. And just the the, the, the sheer loudness of that scene and everyone's reaction um, to him was so wonderful. Uh, how how many times did uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus have to hit you in the course of uh, working on that scene? I think uh, probably between six and ten, if we counted the rehearsals as well. <laughs> um, I think as far as takes go, um, probably four or five. Um, we did, we did that. That that to me was I think that was something that just kind of came up as we were doing it. I don't think I even really considered. Uh, until we were sitting in the room that Jonah, Jonah is very, very rarely calm about anything. He operates like these, you know, these sort of frenzied pitches. He's either very (laughs) upset or very angry. Like he's a very rash and and kind of off the handled kind of guy. But this is the first time that we've ever had, or I think maybe one of the only times that we've ever seen a measured and direct Jonah (laughs) and like, and a very calm one in that the, the offer of vice president to him is sort of abhorrent like this. I was like, no, I have worked this hard and I have come this far and I'm not going to give it up for nothing. I'm uh, like, this is not an acceptable offer. I'm going to be president. I like that. There is something sort of calm about him saying, no, that that's not, it's not going to happen. And then after being browbeat for 30 seconds, like he gives up on it so quickly and reverts back to his sort of giant toddler, like, fine, I'll do it, like, complaints and just immediately sells himself out and undercuts it. <laughs> it is it is interesting that for briefly he is sort of the person with the most sort of serene perspective in that scene and then yeah it all just kind of becomes so chaotic um i wanted to ask some questions about the end of the series takes that really hilarious and really bleak leap forward 24 years um where we see that uh d- 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 nothing good has happened to jonah or to a lot of the characters as it turns out um I- i'd love to know was that kind of flash forward scene was that the last scene that you filmed uh for, for the show i know the very last scene that i filmed for the show was the one outside of the oval office with uh amy where we're talking to sue uh-huh uh-huh where where the the, the, the sort of book ending scene um in the kind of uh flash forward there's this implication about uh, jonah having been impeached we never really hear anything else about that but i i'd love to know just kind of as a performer was there any kind of like filling into the blanks that you did for what happened to jonah in the intervening um couple of decades between when we see him as vice president and when we see him decidedly not invited to to the funeral I think that was the day before my last day. It was it was it was very 
or it was just toward the edge, and it was almost a throwaway line that didn't have much to do with like even with that scene particularly, like this mm-hmm. idea that he had been impeached, and <laughs> and it was almost like intentionally kept uh, uh, in the background. Um, uh-huh. But I do like as far as the what the discussions that I remember with Dave, he didn't ever become president. Um, uh, he was in. He was impeached as a vice president, <laughs> which I actually did not know was something that could happen and, until that. Until they actually said, but apparently it is. And that, like, so I believe for me, he was impeached during his Selena Meyer term, uh-huh. and then was out of politics after that. Uh huh. Uh huh. It it did seem as if like you know, his just... his rise to power lasted exactly two years, uh, <laughs> and then it was all over for him. <laughs> but but he did certainly have a rise to power, and I have to say, just compared to some of the other characters in the finale, I'm not going to say that Jonah had a happy ending. But it seems as if you know he's he's still married in a marriage that is decidedly unconventional. But you know that the house looks okay. Is this was this was this as happy of, of an ending as he was ever going to get uh, for, for, for this character? I mean, it's a happy ending. It's, it's, it's as much of a happy ending as he was ever going to get, being that he's still himself. Uh, you know, the, the house that they're in is his mother's house. Um, <laughs> we shot different takes of that, one of which alluded to the idea that his mother was still alive and still living in the home, and they were oh, living there too. Oh, no. Um, I think in this version... Um, she is not mentioned, so we can we can assume that she might um, she might be, uh, have passed on. Um, <laughs> but it is funny that this ridiculous relationship that he's in, this one with his his half sister, uh, uh, Beth like genuinely loves him and thinks he's funny, and they actually did have a pretty great and supportive relationship and it is funny that it lasted that <laughs> that they that they decided yeah we're going to spend the rest of our lives together and uh, we are going to live in your mother's house and i'm going to make you uh easy mac uh until you're incredibly old it's i mean it is as happy as it's going to be um just kind of looking back in general on on seven seasons of veep um you know one of the things i was that was interesting was as this show was just becoming more and more popular you'd always kind of hear about how um you know certain characters on the show in in like real world uh dc lingo they'd kind of become a part of the culture and i it seems to me as if like there was a point where just the notion of 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 jonah's was so central and, and just you know having these people People who just seem to reflect your character and just this this whole idea of just this political hack and this person who just is is in the sort of beating heart of of DC politics um, was that kind of anything? Did people who worked in DC ever ever kind of talk or, or or commiserate with you about versions of Jonah Ryan that they had met in in real life? Yeah, no, it definitely happened. There would be times where, especially because, you know, as a cast, we would go to D.C. a lot. We would film. We filmed in Baltimore. We would be in D.C. a lot for either research or we would film up there sometimes. Um, we were able to go to the correspondence dinner while that, when that was still a thing um, <laughs> a few times when the show was happening. And that did come up a lot. There would be people that would introduce themselves as 
you know, I'm a Mike or I'm an Amy, but no, I, I never met anybody that introduced themselves as a Jonah. That was something that never happened. Um, I, cause I can't imagine who would ever introduce themselves as that. There were people that introduced themselves as Dan's. And I, I would argue that anybody that would introduce themselves as a Dan has a 50, 50 chance of being a Jonah, just like somebody that cannot see themselves clearly. Cause that is who Jonah thought he was. I think he thought he was a, you know, sort of attractive go getter, just like Dan was. And, um, uh, it did happen. I mean, like, and especially as I was, as I would meet people, not even if they didn't work in politics, there was like, when I would meet people who watched the show, there sometimes was a kinship that was sparked up when they're like, I work with somebody that's just as awful as that guy is. Like I work with the Jonah and it's terrible. That would happen a fair amount. You always heard tell of them, but you never actually met them. Right, right. That would be very bold if someone were to walk up and say, yeah, like, I admit it, I'm, I'm kind of a Jonah. That, that would require more self-awareness and, and clarity than, <laughs> than, than Jonas probably have. That would be an awful experience. You'd have to make them clarify. Like, are you, like so you're a sexual harasser or um, you just have no skills or no talents, but you think you should run things? Um, you know, uh, one of the things that was always interesting about the show was that from kind of where the characters started, there was a point in the series where it became clear that, you know, as awful as they might remain, the actual sort of dynamics and even what they were doing within the political world shifted so much. Um, do you have kind of like favorite seasons or kind of favorite arcs with Jonah? I mean, again, this is a character who, in a, in a strange way, he was always kind of climbing and then falling and then climbing further up to the near top of the uh, DC political ladder. I mean, like I've been lucky and that they've all been pretty fun. Like I loved, I, I loved when he got fired and tried to reinvent himself as a, as a DC blogger, as like a, you know, a, a, a Silicon Valley heavy hitter. I, I liked that storyline for him. I did like seeing the sort of like the how like, you know, being harassed at work and being molested at work weighed on him. That was that was fun to play. I, I was a big fan of when he ran for Congress uh, just because it gave him a chance to uh, at that point. We had only ever seen Jonah behind the scenes. There then had to be like a, a forward facing and like public facing Jonah rather than just a, a work faced Jonah. He had, you actually had to put him out there with voters and see how he would react in the real world. And of course, none of it went well. So that was really fun too. And then, you know, then like if you give, if you give a terrible person power, you get to play with the idea of him actually in Congress with some sort of power, then that's a nightmare as well. So like that was, I mean, like I've been really lucky that these storylines have all been really fun to play. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, it's funny, even you kind of saying all this, I'm remembering that this character, he really, you know, so much sort of wonderful absurdity along the way. And even so this season, it just felt like um, you're kind of talking about the kind of public facing Jonah and how just his persona in some of those big speeches. Uh, I'd love to kind of know what was the kind of preparation like for just some of the big, um, you know, speeches when he's talking to the adoring public this season. Like, was there some kind of... Uh, uh, it feels as if it was always just so high energy playing the character in, in those moments. What, what, was, what was the kind of preparation like when you're playing him in those scenes where he's just saying more and more ridiculous things to louder and louder sounding applause from, uh, from the public? 
Well, I think it was just for me, it was just the conviction of these, like, you know, it's a ridiculous thing, but he just has to be fully committed to them. Whenever anybody's on the campaign trail, like they're, they, if they're talking about something that's really uh, important, if they're talking about, you know, access to healthcare, they are going to, you know, or, or climate change, they're going to put, um, the necessary weight on that, like those are really important issues. And, and for him, it had, these things have the same weight for him that, mm-hmm. uh, that no, we shouldn't be, uh, using, uh, is, is Islamic math or, uh, <laughs> or, I mean, I'm trying to think of even some of the, I mean, like the anti-vax stuff, he just, it, it, in his, if you actually go back and like reverse engineer it, he doesn't actually really care. I mean, he even says like, like when everybody starts getting chicken pox and he's patient zero, he's like, yeah, it serves him right for being so dumb. Like he's not actually committed to it. He just needs to have the conviction of this is what's going to get these people to believe in me. Uh-huh. And so just making sure that he truly in his heart when he was giving the speeches could convince someone that he was doing the right thing and believed in it. Uh-huh. Uh, I have to ask some questions about the Jonah Ryan insults, uh, which piled so especially high in the last few episodes. This endless mm-hmm. invective, endless invective uh, being being pointed his, his direction by everyone around him. Um, what was it like kind of being at the center, at the center of that nonstop hurricane of just people always insulting Jonah? Just the, the, the ornate qualities of the Jonah Ryan insults became so so remarkable, especially as the seasons went along. But was it was it difficult to kind of withstand that? <laughs> no, it really wasn't. Just because the the nature of the show and the language of the show was that that was just how information was conveyed. The, the insults for everybody were just the way that people spoke to one another. And if they like, it was as simple as, "Will you hand me that coffee cup?" Except you are being insulted at the end of that. Like you are. Like you have a withering insult at the end of that sentence, but all it is is information. Somebody's just asking to hand you the coffee cup, so you kind of have to play it off as that, just as simply. Because I mean, honestly, like if you didn't, the entire show would be people being like, "Excuse me, you can't say that to me." Like (laughs) it'd be every episode would be an hour and hour and a half long. Um, No, it really it was never it was never really something that ever like never hurt me personally, because ultimately it did, it never even hurt the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, cause I think he also was convinced that whenever people were insulting him, it was never because he was doing anything wrong or there was something wrong with him. It was that, that they were jealous of his power or his stature or his future. Um, it was just, it was all based in jealousy or envy of what he of what he is or what he was going to be yeah it's 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 that incredible stupid confidence that just seems to seems to outpace all other kinds of uh, confidence yeah Um, uh, Tim, uh, we like to ask everybody who comes on Best of Shows a couple questions. Uh, First of all, um, what was the first TV show that you remember being obsessed with or or the first TV show that you really remember loving? I mean, I think like, you know, when I was like really little, I remember watching Little House on the Prairie a lot. That was Uh what I think we watched a lot in our house. Uh And then sort of like as I got older, what did I get into as I older and there was like i mean seinfeld was a huge one that was on i guess when i would have been 
sort of in like middle school into high school and and finished up when I was in college. And I certainly I think I was an early adopter of it. And I think that there was just something about the nihilism of the show that really attracted me. And I feel like ultimately, like that was I mean, that was my sense of humor at the time. I think a lot of other people came around to it. Um, but I mean, so it kind of makes sense that my life tracks toward being in this job. Like if you're attracted to humor based out of nihilism, then then our show's pretty good for you, too. So I think that probably had something to do with it. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to remember that Seinfeld was just such a huge phenomenon in that era of television, and yet it is, as you say, an incredibly bleak show in in almost yeah. every in almost every respect, episode to episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think after like, and then after that, like at, once I was out of college, I was living in Chicago. The Shield was a big show for me. God, I loved that. That was a mm-hmm. The Shield was it still is incredible. It's sometimes it seems like that's becoming, um, you know, of that era of television, which was just so full of these incredible golden age shows. That's the one that I think a lot of people tend to overlook um, a little bit. But you were you were really into that when it, when it was in its in its run on uh, FX. Yeah, I, re- I I think I started with it in season three and was pretty hooked on it. I mean, like the brutality of it was something I feel like I hadn't seen. And like we've seen, I think a lot of like people saw that work and work well. And so you've seen a lot of brutal TV shows since then. But at the time, it, you hadn't ever seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they... And there hadn't been as many anti-heroes as there are now. So you were watching somebody and you had no idea why you were cheering for Vic Mackey. And also, I feel like the fact that it has stood the test of time is because I feel like as when, we, when you talk about like television show finales, I still feel like the, the, the Shield is still the best that's ever been. Like the mm-hmm. best finale that's ever been. I feel like the Shield, the Shield did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just uh, other question that we like to ask everybody who comes on the show what are some newer TV shows that you're loving right now that you've recently gotten into or that you're kind of uh, really obsessed with uh, 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 in the kind of current TV landscape oh um, Killing Eve has been a big one mm-hmm. oh uh, I think you should leave uh, Tim Robinson's sketch show on Netflix is out of this world funny <laughs> I, just, I can't I cannot understand. I was a fan of his when that first year that he was on Saturday Night Live. He was only on as a performer for one year, but I loved him then. It turns out that he's good friends with Sam Richardson, so they work together a lot. Um, but I, I think he's absolutely incredible. Um, I was a big fan of Detroiters uh, as well, so I just, I mean, it's it, he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely one that uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, it, it seems like people are beginning to really um, discover that on on, uh, on yeah. uh, Netflix. Um, Tim, uh, Veep has ended. Uh, what is kind of coming up for you in, in the near future? I, I, I know there's some uh, pretty big projects coming up in the next year or so. Um, well, I'm on a gig right now. I'm working on a, an, a limited series that's going to be on Hulu. I, I I think later on in the year, um, mm-hmm. based on uh, uh, a John Green book called Looking for Alaska, the tone I play, uh, the eagle, if, if, any, if you've read the book, I play the eagle, and it's it's a very different tone.
phone <laughs> than Veep. It's much more earnest. Um, but we're right in the middle of filming that right now. It's been great. It's a really, a really wonderful group of people and a, a really incredible group of young actors. That has been really fun. That's sort of what's going on now. Um, mm-hmm. And in the meantime, uh, and on my down days from that, I'm, I'm developing a show with HBO as well. Fantastic. Uh, one that I'm writing and, and would star in if it if if it if we can get it there. Fantastic. We'll uh, we'll definitely want to be talking to you about uh, both of those projects. Looking very forward to uh, looking for Alaska. When you say different, how many people uh, are insulting your character on an episode to episode basis? You're saying it's like a, a little less than ten per minute, like like, like it was on Veep. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's it's the. It, He's still not well liked at the beginning, but he doesn't get as brutally mocked as he does on V. But he's definitely not a he's definitely not a favorite among the uh, young cast. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, uh, very excited to uh, see that uh, when it uh, when it comes out. Uh, Timothy Simons, thank you so much for joining us here on on this week's episode of Best of Shows. That was my pleasure. That'll do it for this week's episode of Best of Shows. If you like what you hear, give us a rating and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio.com, or wherever podcasts are potted. If you don't like it or just want to talk TV, tweet at us. I'm Kristen G. Baldwin, and my partner in crime is at Darren Franich. Let us know what you think. Tell us things you want us to talk about. And until next week, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So bye. Bye.